It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. Josh Myers is the head of post-production and also the co-founder of Emergent Order. And we saw each other recently at the Creative Summit in Cupertino, where he gave a presentation about the workflow on a movie called The Pursuit. Hi, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing great, Serena. How are you? I'm wonderful. We just have to talk about this because um, this was an incredible production. So can you tell people who are listening, what is The Pursuit? Who was in it? And what was it about? Sure. Uh, The Pursuit is a feature documentary, uh, and it's based on the writings and talks of Arthur Brooks. He's an economist and researcher. And his work is is really interesting. It, it ranges from global poverty, um, dignity that comes from work, and the pursuit of happiness. So we had we tried to cram all of those themes into one film, and that's one of the reasons it took. You know, it was a three year process to mm-hmm. from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he's got a lot of interesting and dense themes and. You know, we went around the country and around the world. And, you know, in the end, I I really think we ended up with, you know, kind of this interesting video essay that encapsulates the the best of his of his thoughts and research. And and hopefully, you know, people are getting something out of it. It's up on Netflix now and uh, it had a pretty decent film festival run and you know, hopefully more people check it out. I think it's awesome. Now, you're the co-founder of the company. So even though you're in charge of post-production, do you also get involved from the very beginning on the creative side and the scripting? And how does all of that work between you and your partners? Yes. um, I mean, it's really great because we all have very different uh, focuses of our our kind of careers. So my co-founder, John Popola, is a great director and the CEO here, my other co-founder, Lisa Versace, she's a great producer. Mm-hmm. And um, my background's mostly in post-production and editing. So we actually form a really great unit in terms of, you know, being able to look at a project and think about it from all those different angles right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. so we have all that capability in-house. And you know, I just think we really, we really complement each other. We've, we've all been working together for a long time. I mean, um, John has been my best friend since fifth grade. So a really long time working together, you know, I mean, actually doing school projects and videos in high school all the way through working at broadcast channels, working at Spike TV together in Nickelodeon. And yeah, we've, we've just, (laughs) we, we sort of almost share a brain at this point. So we're, we're all involved in the creative process right from the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in our different, in our different capabilities. So, 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 I mean, it's very helpful to have, um, you know, me as the editor in at the beginning, because it's just like, the the process once we get the footage in goes a lot faster well quote unquote faster <laughs> um, but but I mean it's just like I know what we're trying to get out of it mm-hmm. so I, I don't necessarily need people to sit with me twenty four seven you know mm-hmm. you can just dump a bunch of footage on me and I can pull out a story because I I already know what we're trying to do that's awesome it's wonderful to work with people that you know that well you get the da- you know you do the dance right you guys are in Austin right. 
Yeah, we're in Austin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually made the move down here about it's going to be nine nine years ago, and uh, it it feels like yesterday. I mean, if you told me I would be down here almost a decade, I well, first of all, before we moved here, I would have said you were crazy because we were all New Yorkers living in New York, and I kind of saw myself there forever. Hmm. And then <laughs> just just ready for a lifestyle change and ready to open our business. And we came down here. Why Austin? I mean, I'm hearing amazing things about Austin right now. Well, Austin is really growing. And when we looked around here in 2011, um, you know, we, we were interested in lifestyle change. So, you know, a smaller city than New York was exciting. Um, uh, you know, shorter, (laughs) shorter commute, Mm -hmm. um, Weather's generally better. There's really no snow down here. Um, And beautiful homes for a lot less money. Yes, that's true, although that's becoming less true as everybody from New York and California continues to move here. But that's that's a good thing because, you know, it's like Apple's just opening a new campus here and it's it's definitely on the move. Um, And before we move down here, there's a lot of great uh, there's a lot of great creative. It's a creative hub. You know, mm-hmm. people do move here. There's an Austin Studios. Richard Linkletter makes all his movies here. Robert Rodriguez. There's actually a lot of animation studios here, which is interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I I think when we looked around, we saw a lot of people moving here for similar reasons. And mm-hmm. we've been able to draw on the local talent quite a bit for our projects. And it's been it's been great. So there's good crews there as well. Yeah, really good wow. crews. Um, you know, it, it, crews kind of ebb and flow mm-hmm. in in the states when you talk about where the film incentives are. <laughs> right. Um, you know, if when we first moved down here, there was actually I think three or four different TV shows shooting at once. Um, Friday Night Lights was shooting down here. Um, a bunch I can't even remember, but. They sort of all moved to Louisiana once the <laughs> once the film incentive dried up. Um, so that made the crews a little thinner in terms of TV and narrative. But the documentary crews and editors down here are very strong. It's a hmm. very deep talent roster. And I was surprised by that. And it just so happens that's what we do the most of. Hmm. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. You said that you've been working on or that you did work on The Pursuit for three years. It's, isn't it interesting when you're doing a documentary? It's not like a scripted film where you can actually schedule the time. You know exactly how long it's going to take you to shoot. You know your locations. You have your script. With a documentary, and I get this all the time, people are asking me, when's your film about Chianti going to be finished? And, and I keep, <laughs> you know, I keep saying, well, this is a real living person. And the story kind of ebbs and flows and completely, it can completely change. Did you experience that with Arthur? I mean, what was your approach in the beginning creatively? And did did that change when you – I mean, I, I'm Italian. I just hit the mic when I'm talking. Don't you love that? My oh, list, yeah. My yeah. listeners are used, used to it. I can't talk without using my hands. You're using hands, big yeah. motions. Well, I'm, I'm, from a, <laughs> I'm from an Italian family, so I understand. Okay. We used to – at family gatherings, if you wanted to make your point, you got up on your chair – <laughs> and if you tend to get higher, the next person would get up on the table. It's like the arguments were solved by who is actually higher vertically. <laughs> so I, I know. I know I the uh, I know the all the dynamic nature. Oh, I keep telling people I'm not yelling. I'm just Italian. We talk loud. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 
So, yeah, I was asking you about the creative, the story, and how it may have changed a little. What did you want to do when you first started, and how did it change? Well, I mean, like you mentioned before, you know, narrative, and my my background is in commercials, um, mostly. So you're talking like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Before I left Spike, we were doing 15 and 10 seconds because, you know, like right. air airtime was eroding. You know, you had to give more ad sales to the bigger companies. So, you know, station IDs were less and less. So I had a very, you know, my schedules were more like I can get this done in three to four days. Mm-hmm. You know, those are, you know, a long schedule back when I was at the broadcast networks was like two weeks. That's really long for a, for a spot. Um, so this was an adjustment and I think we've, you know, we sort of worked up to doing a documentary feature. We did short pieces, you know, five to 10 minutes. We did a lot of those for nonprofits and, you know, it took a while till we felt like we had the experience level required to take on a documentary feature and it is something yeah. It is something because you have this soup of stuff. And then you start with this outline <laughs> and it's a good outline. Yeah. And it's like, boy, I would like to watch that movie. Yeah. And, you know, we executed that outline to the best of our ability and it just wasn't right. Right. And I think we had, we had a lot of thoughts. So it's like Arthur, is a, is an author and he, and he speaks a lot. Like he has Ted talks, he has Aspen idea festival. He, he speaks 250 times a year. Wow. I, it's, I mean, really? Like, yeah, seriously. Huh. So we put him on camera and we didn't think that was actually going to be a big deal, you know, because it's like we would go to these countries and you sort of needed, needed a guide through it. Or you were just making this sort of survey film that's unmoored from any sort of, you know, like personal storytelling. Right. We were trying to find a thread to connect. So we kept putting Arthur in the movie more and more. And he really was surprised by that. And I think it was very hard for him to offer feedback as he became more and more entrenched in the film. And there's mm-hmm. there's sort of a whole story where, you know, it tells his backstory, it shows his family, he's very vulnerable. And, and, and honestly, the thing he hated the most. So Arthur was a French horn, professional French horn player in, I think the eighties or nineties in Barcelona, Spain. Hmm. We brought him back to that stage and gave him a French horn, you know, in 2016. And he played something And it sounded great to me. I mean, you know, it's like he picked it up for the first time in 20 years and played like a concerto or something that made him so crazy because he hit a few bad notes. Right. We, we re-edited that scene more than I think any scene in the movie Mm -hmm. to the point where we were like, should we just cut it? Because he's (laughs) so bothered by it. And he's so embarrassed for people to see it. And and I'm telling you, you would watch it and be like, he sounds great to me. Right. You know, uh, and so these were the kind of challenges we faced that really took me by surprise because I just thought it was a really cute, nice scene between right. him and his wife. And to him, it was like a nightmare. Like he was worried about it. He and And look, to be fair, 
I think some of his concerns were correct because he wanted to make sure his message about, you know, people living in poverty and people trying to pursue their happiness here and abroad was the main message. He did not want to make some sort of vanity project where he's the star. So mm -hmm. that was his concern. And I, I understood that, but it's this balance because without him in it, it was these very disconnected episodes right. that, that, that were not jiving together. And I really think that connective tissue is what took so long. I mean, that we spent two years on that. Not, but it's not worth it. Not continuous, but we kept reshooting it. We kept, you know, we shot interviews with him, sit down interviews with him four times. We shot a new uh, speech he gave on stage. You know, it's like we did a rehearsed speech, you know, all these things. But yeah, it, it, it was worth it because I, I think, I think you just needed him. That element could not be cut out. Of course. It's his story. And, and the music is, comes from his soul. I mean, it comes from his heart. Well, it had to have been interesting for you. Have you done a lot of uh, recording of live music? Had the team done that before? Because that's a whole different physical setup than, say, a, a normal interview, right? So when you're recording the, uh, the music, was that hard to do as well for you? I, I think, I mean, we don't have a lot of that in our background. Mm -hmm. This, I, I might be overstating what we did. I mm -hmm. mean, we, you know, he was on stage alone in the theater mm -hmm. and, you know, we handed him a French horn and it was a surprise to him. I don't think it necessarily plays that way in the film. We've had people say, boy, that's really staged. And we're like, no, he really didn't know. <laughs> um, and so, you know, then he plays and we have, um, our cinematographer sort of walking around him and walking forward. And, you know, there's a boom recording him and he's mic'd. Okay. But um, it's really just like him in a empty concert theater. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, it, there were challenges because there was a lot of audio editing to be done later because he wanted us to actually clean up any bad notes. Right. Um, so that, that was a real, challenge and also because he's such a he's got such a musical background he wanted to be super involved in the scoring of this film you know he had notes for the composer that went beyond our knowledge and so we put him in direct touch with the composer which i'm sure was not <laughs> the composer's favorite time but um, I mean, like down, not only down to the instrument, but down to the chord, you know, and it's like it should move minor here. And it should, it's like, oh, wow. OK, well, you have final cut, Arthur. So have at it. <laughs> I can, you know, in his defense, a tiny bit. I know it's really hard for you guys and for the composer, but I can understand, you know, moving from major to minor and switching the chords. Those are important beats in the storyline, but it would be hard for him to know what you were planning in terms of the story. I mean, he was scoring this after you'd cut it, right? Correct. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see both sides of that. This is awesome. How many interviews did you do for this film? Oh, um, I have it in my notes here. Oh yeah. Uh, about 60 character and expert interviews wow. overall. So um, and, and what's interesting is looking back in retrospect, a lot of the expert interviews 
were left on the cutting room floor Mm -hmm. um, for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, uh, One being that halfway through the movie, you know, as I said, we had that beautiful outline and that changed quite a bit Mm -hmm. halfway through. And a lot of the experts kind of spoke to that other outline. So Mm -hmm. we weren't going to go back and Mm re-interview everybody. I mean, you know, everybody's all across the world and across the country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like you get what you get and hopefully you can retrofit some of this stuff. And uh, it comes across like it was about the final intention of the movie. You know, it's, uh, it's funny. I laugh at people who say that documentaries are unscripted. Did you actually, now you were editing it and you were involved in the production. So did you actually work from a written script that, that came together after you said, okay, this is wrap, we're done. We're going to start cutting. Did you work from a script? How did you piece together the story creatively on your end? Um, what we had, um, we, we got everything transcribed. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, as I said, there was a fairly detailed outline, which had basically like a scene and interview order. Mm-hmm. So it, I at least had like that baseline, mm-hmm. but then you just had to watch everything. And we had a great story producer, mm-hmm. uh, Spencer, and he went through as well. And it's sort of a divide and conquer I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was on it the whole time, but in, at various times I had other editors coming in to help with individual scenes just so we could make more progress. You know, I'd, I'd be on one scene, they would take another scene and um, everybody would be able to fully, you know, absorb all the material. Mm-hmm. And um, the, I mean, there were times when sort of a full paper cut was assembled Mm-hmm. For for a specific scene, um, Arthur in particular can be very wordy. So a lot of times, John, the director, would go in and assemble a paper cut. You know, because it's like a lot of times we're we're talking about these concepts that you know maybe I don't fully understand, mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. it's like maybe maybe a test audience says, "Boy, you didn't really give me enough there right. to get it." So you have to put in more interview than you thought you had to. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're trying to be concise, but it's like, well, you got to give me an example of what he's talking about here. I don't really get it. Or you're it's, or it's flying by, right? you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that I realized. I don't know why, but I always notice it in test screenings in theaters when things mm-hmm. are flying by and maybe it's because it's so big. Let's go ahead and start with the, the the workflow from soup to nuts, okay? What cameras were you using and how did that affect what you did in post and was sound ever a problem? Can you talk to me about the marriage between what was going on in production and then the bridge to post and how you managed all of that? Um, sure, sure. And I mean, just let me know if you need more or less detail on some of this stuff. Um, you can geek out as much as you want. I mean, people who listen to this, they want to know. And I think anything that you can tell them about what worked, what didn't work, how you did it, people love that and it will help them. And that's one of the main reasons that I wanted to do this is to share my friends' creativity with the world and also to help others who want to get better at what they're doing. So uh, you are able to do both of those. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, 
I hope I can live up to that. There you go. Now uh, that I've embarrassed you, you can keep talking. <laughs> okay. Um, well, okay. So we used a whole bunch of different cameras. Um, we shot a lot of our interviews on the Red Dragon, mm-hmm. um, which at the time we owned. And since we have sold that camera, um, we have three Sony FS7s. Um, that I would say did the lion's share of the shooting on this project. Mm-hmm. You know, we actually shot, um, once the red was out of our lives, we shot a lot of the interviews on the FS7. And honestly, they blend pretty, they blend well together with the Red Dragon with a, uh, enough color. Yeah, I was going to ask color, you about correct. the color space between the two. Did that, was that, a, that wasn't a problem? No, I mean, where it is a problem, if um, the next camera that we we shot with the Sony A7S. Oh yeah. Um, and that was you know a lot of our walking shots in India mm-hmm. were A7S on the Ronin rig. Mm-hmm. You know, so you do get that nice small footprint um, with the size of that rig and the camera, but you know it's its color space is not as good as either of those other cameras. The problem is you just can't get the rig we had. You just couldn't get a bigger camera on the rig. Right. And, and, and especially when you're talking about doing a long walking shoot, you need to maximize (laughs) the weight you're carrying. Of course. Because your wrists hurt very badly. You know, you're wearing a vest, but it's hurting your spine. So, um, so that camera, pose some problems i i it's an 8-bit codec um so you know getting it to match the sony fs7 is easier than the red um you know they have a bit of the same color science on there but but yeah there's there's difficulty in the low light um you know, you just don't have as much latitude there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I think overall, it's like you know, I, it projects fine onto the big screen. Um, we were shooting 4K on all these cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, we also used uh, a DJI Phantom drone for a lot of the, you know, overhead establishing shots, um, some of the driving shots in the movie. Um, so yeah, so basically, right there, you have four codecs that have to live together. Mm-hmm. So we employed a proxy workflow in our project. Um, we used Final Cut 10, uh, but we rendered our proxies outside of the software. Um, so we had, you know, some had lookup tables baked in, um, some did not. It depended, you know, whether we used Red Cine or Sony Catalyst, and then just some were just done with compressor and then a lookup table added in Final Cut. Yeah, th- sorry, this is getting real geeky. Yeah. Do you like baked-in LUTs, or do you prefer to do them in post? And and were you working in Resolve for color, too? I'm curious about that. Yes, well, the Resolve question, we finished the movie in Resolve. Mm-hmm. So basically think of it as an offline, online workflow where Final Cut 10 is your offline edit right. program. With proxies. With proxies. Right. And then you reconnect to your camera media in resolve. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, we're talking about baked in lookup tables for, you know, our proxy workflow. So we don't spend a whole, you know, we, we arrive at a good look for our red interviews. There might be a little more that has to be done, but you know, we don't like to just drop everything in, in S log. 
Um, although you can do either one. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around. We no, definitely, we definitely do both. I mean, it just depends. I think the red cine stuff, we just, the, the color in there and the lookup tables are, are really easy to use. So I think we just baked them in there. Mm-hmm. But then the other stuff was lookup tables used in the edit. And I think we used the, there's like the Sony Cine Gamma 3. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's basically like you want this stuff to look really good and not distracting, but you don't want to waste a ton of time on color correction in this sort of offline edit. No, I agree. I totally agree. Um, I think there are some new uh, color spaces that are available with the Sony A7S that make it more filmic and are, are yes. more easily compatible with the the other uh more cinematic cameras. So that's good. Now, when you started the film, though, you weren't shooting in 4K in the beginning, right? Or were you? Yes. Wow. Always 4K. Okay. We shot shot our previous feature doc in 4K as well. So, you know, we've just made the decision. (laughs) I I know. I know. And I mean, look, I'm definitely (laughs) at odds with that because I really want you know, the most beautiful film we can create, but I'm also the post-production guy. And I'm like, that's going to cost a lot of money. And And it was huge. The files are huge, right? How much, how much data did you end up with after three years, 60 interviews? And, you know, at least four of them were two hours each from what you're telling me. So how much media did you end up with that you were juggling? I mean, just the camera media was... Uh, about 20, 22 terabytes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's the interviews and B-roll. Mm-hmm. Then we had an additional two to three terabytes of archival and stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, from there, you also have to render all your proxies, which aren't huge, but I think that was an additional, I want to say maybe five terabytes. Right. So, so it's a big footprint on your, on your storage. I mean, we have a edit share server, it's about 128 terabytes. I think, you know, a hundred of that is actually usable. So, you know, you have that parked in there. And at the, we were finishing the previous documentary when we started shooting this one. So it really got to be sort of a traffic jam in terms of storage. Yeah, I understand that. Wow. So what are you going to do going forward? You're, you're not going to have enough space. <laughs> Well, that's always, that is always the problem. And I mean, you know, for about two days, you know, we seriously discussed shooting our next doc in six or eight K. But we are just not ready for that for a number of reasons. You know, I I don't think that, I just don't think we're prepared for that (laughs) storage wise. I don't think all of our, you know, we, we give ourselves a lot of flexibility because, you know, people can pitch in, you know, we have a bunch of iMac pros but then the 5K Retina iMacs are great at working with this stuff too. So we want to make sure all of our current computers can deal with this footage. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, once you get it to the proxy workflow, I mean, even the laptops can deal with it. So that's a really nice feature of working in the uh, the lower resolution. Yeah, but you still need space 
uh, when you're going to finishing, if you're going to do it in-house. Uh, it's a problem. You ought to go, you're in Austin, walk over to OWC and and take a look at what they have, because I think that they can help you with this. And you know we're sponsored by OWC, so I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> yes, yes. And can I can I plug something? OWC? Yeah, please. Um, for the summit, I bought the what is it? The Express 4M2, mm. and I loaded that up with eight terabytes of SSD chips. Mm-hmm. And man, that is like my favorite piece of hardware right now. Yeah, it's vast stuff. It's so good. Well, the other thing about OWC, and I'm not saying this because they sponsor, I've been a client of theirs for many years. And if I've ever had a problem with a drive, I can pick up the phone and call and a human being answers. And they speak really good English. And they help me and they understand technology. And if there's a problem, they'll say, hey, we'll send you a replacement. Send that one back and we'll figure it out. And so you don't lose time with your production, which is really important. There are a lot of companies that don't understand that, you know, waiting, waiting 48 hours even is difficult when you're on a deadline for a network or you're trying to make a theatrical release. So what about, what about sound? Okay. So you, you, um, you, when you told me you did four interviews with Arthur, I'm thinking, okay, were they using the same sound setup for all four? And, how do you match sound when you're dealing with so many different kinds of sources? Yes. There, there's a lot to deal Am with. Am I there. giving and you nightmares? <laughs> yes. And I mean, <clears throat> the thing is, you know, we work with some great sound mixers here in Austin. So a lot of times I just have to get it to the point where it's passable mm-hmm. and then let them deal with the nightmare mm-hmm. of, of, you know, mixing everything together and making it sound like it's all in the same day. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing I'll say is we, you know, we worked with local mixers, most of the uh, recordists mm-hmm. when we would go to locations um, and the quality of all the talent was really good. Um, I believe this is because I wasn't on the shoot, but I believe for all the Arthur interviews that were in his house was the same recordist, same room. You know, like they would take pictures of the setup um, smart. and make sure, you know, the boom mic is the same height, his, you know, his lav is in the same place. So that part, I think the sound there was easily controlled. However, you know, there were, there were a number of other places we recorded Arthur, you know, either on a balcony in India or on a stage in Barcelona, um, in, in a VO booth, we had him down for two days of VO and that's where the real challenges lie because sometimes you're actually putting all those lines in a row to kind of make a complete thought. Mm -hmm. So his sit down interview, the VO booth, all that stuff, you're trying to make it all sound like one thing. And that is where the, the real sound mastery comes in. Yeah. Sound is so important. So important. And, you know, it's, you got to just listen on a ton of different speakers. And, you know, it's like sometimes you're, you're listening at the, the mixing house and you come back and you're listening on headphones and you're like, ah, I thought it matched, but now let's try one more time. You know, it's just that meticulousness is just, you gotta, you gotta nail it because people notice. Yeah, they really do. Even if they're not aware that they're noticing it, it's subliminal. 
um, they'll pick up on it. That's Just right. Something in the back of their head will say, this doesn't feel right. And, and I, I'm, you know, you can get away with a bad picture to a certain extent. If you have bad mm-hmm. sound, forget about it. So I know. Yeah, but I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about everywhere you went and how long it took. How on earth can you talk about how you finance your films? And then I want to get into post-production workflow. But um, if I don't ask you these questions while I think about them, they just fly out the window. But how, how do you... How do you finance all this? Because this is an expensive proposition. And now, yes, you're on Netflix. You did a deal with Netflix, which is awesome. That's not easy to get. But what did you do in the meantime? Well, I mean, the the two feature docs that we have sort of out in the world right now, The Pursuit and At the Fork, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you could consider the – well, they are works for hire. So um, we go through a pitch process. Um, you know, we hear about these projects through one way or another, either through connections or friends of friends or just j- mm-hmm. there's sort of like a pipeline of things. You know, it's like you've done work for another client. And they're like, hey, you know, these guys are looking for somebody to shoot this. So um, the first movie was financed by the by Whole Foods and the Humane Society. Mm-hmm. And that that's great. So. Um, you don't actually, so it's like, those are, of course, all these movies are for profit ventures, but documentary is really tough mm-hmm. from, from, a you know, a production company standpoint. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've gotten paid from the budget mm-hmm. and then basically any money that comes in from Netflix or iTunes goes to the, the, the funder. Um, and, and for the, and for the pursuit, Arthur had like a private donor that wanted to adapt his book to a movie. Mm -hmm. So Arthur once again came to the table with the budget money. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it it is. And I mean, it's just like, that is not the way all, you know, I mean, we do a lot of for hire work and we're endeavoring right now for the first time to do a fully self-funded documentary. That's our next one. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of our maiden voyage. And we're we're sort of a fifth of the way there. Mm-hmm. So we've already started shooting. And But it's a very different process. It's a very more, much more independent film going door-to-door process. Yeah, it's not easy. Uh, documentary filmmakers do it for the love of the genre and the love of the story. But I like the idea that you're putting out there that we can encourage people to do work for hire. So to go out there and try to find a sponsor ahead of time, that's going to help you finance these films and uh, using your own money is tough. Trust me. I, Oh yeah. I know. I know for those who don't know who are listening in the movie that uh, Josh is talking about was called at the fork and it played at the Berlinale, which is the Berlin international film festival in Germany. Uh, in 2017, the, the film was produced in 2016, right? But you were right. you were part of in 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 the Berlin Film Festival, the culinary cinema. Uh, what do you want to call it? The culinary cinema track is really very popular, and I didn't see this movie, but I was looking into it before I did this interview with you, and it sounds really interesting because the filmmaker John Popola is that how I pronounce his name? Correct. He's an omnivore and his wife is a vegetarian. So right from the get go, I am going to, can I find this movie and watch it somewhere now? Yes. I, 
I believe it is still up on Amazon Prime. Okay, awesome. I'm going to look for it because it's got to be very interesting. Uh, I'm a I'm an omnivore as well, so I'm very curious about how John's impression may have changed during the filming of that of that uh, movie because my daughter is a ve- vegan slash vegetarian, mm-hmm. and um, you know when you mix a household like that, it's very interesting. You were one of the editors on that project as well, right? That's correct. Okay. All right. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, anyway, you guys look at At the Fork on Amazon Prime. And then let's go back to The Pursuit and talk about uh, if you were sitting in your editing suite, can you tell us what's in it, what software, what hardware? You mentioned Final Cut. Um, what else am I looking at? Um, let's see. I have um, I have an iMac Pro um, and I actually use that. So that's kind of off to the side as my broadcast monitor. Mm-hmm. And in front of me, I have, it's like an LG, one of those widescreen mm-hmm. monitors on a arm, because mm-hmm. I, I just really like how you can work on the time, you know, a nice wide monitor for a nice long timeline is great. You know what, Josh, I'm so glad you said that because I have one as well. <laughs> and I always feel a little guilty that it's not one of these really expensive. Now I do have the 5Ks and all of that, but the mm-hmm. one that I use mm-hmm. every day is the little is the LG, the 32 inch. It's right. slightly curved and it's on a high. So you you just made me feel very good. Yes. I mean, it's, you definitely, like for me, I don't want to do color correction on it because no. it's not one of these no. really nice retina displays, but no. but it just gives you so much workspace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it's basically like two monitors together mm-hmm. in front of you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I have that. Um, I, I just got an, an OLED uh, screen. I don't even know who makes it. I guess it's an LG mm-hmm. uh, 60 inch. And it has like all the HDR stuff, like the Dolby Vision and all that, mm-hmm. and, um, which we haven't done HDR yet. But on this next project, I think we are going to, you know, because that's really come into its own where uh, the client really didn't understand why we would pay for that for the pursuit, which, you know, that's that's fair. And I think because of the mix of cameras, it probably wouldn't have really been the best material to do like an HDR pass with, Mm -hmm. you know, like it really wouldn't have done very well on that a seven S camera. But I, I really, I really do think it, it, it makes a big difference. I know there's, there's always a lot of, uh, there's, there's sort of a war on about that and how, you know, there's like that post-processing HDR that really wrecks certain films and all that. But, um, we, we always just try to get into, like we really like new stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, we really just like really great picture quality and, um, we always have. And I mean, you know, it's been, it's, it's a long time coming from when we used to do, you know, 640 by 480 oh my editing gosh. on our, um, in, you know, premiere 1.0 or whatever that was. Yeah. And that brings just, back memories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've just been. We we bought one of the first capture cards, you know, that was mm-hmm. affordable by Pinnacle and <laughs> never never looked back. Wow. Boy, times have changed. Now now what are you using for studio monitors and for headphones and things like that? Oh, I have really they're a little too big. Uh the Rocket Eights mm-hmm. KRK studio monitors with a big subwoofer on the floor. 
I like AKG headphones. I've actually been using those for, man, it's like 15 years now. The same model. It's like the only one that feels really comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's like sometimes you just leave them on all day and your ears can ache. No, that's true. And I also am always curious about, you know, I'm not the sound mixer. I'm I'm uh, very cognizant of sound. And I wonder how the headphones change the way we perceive sound when we're editing. So uh, everybody has a headphone that they love, it seems like. The headphones have their own personality, don't they? Yeah, they certainly do. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's this weird, you know, there's, I don't know, there's like an affinity, there's a nostalgia I have now for this headphone. <laughs> you know, as soon as I can get one, you know, I just wear them out. I'm on my whatever, sixth pair <laughs> I or something like that because like the wires fray and the ear <laughs> fall out. But it's, what are you going to do, man? They sound really good. It's like your favorite stuffed animal when you're it a little is. boy. <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's a warm friend. There you go. All right. So we got speakers, monitors, you have your, your 60 inch, um, monitor you've got the oh, LG, I, I, I can you've got the iMac. I can add one thing I can add one thing I'm you know I actually started out um when I was at WWE I worked in online rooms and I actually used like a Chiron keyboard like the actual Chiron wow. machine and they were super clacky mm-hmm. and the Grass Valley keyboards are really clacky and I've never kind of gotten over that so I have like one of those um it's like a German ABS clacky keyboard you can always hear me down the hall. It's like, sounds like I'm really working hard because you can hear the, like it almost, and it's funny because it's like when I type and I'm talking on the phone, people are like, is that a sound effect? Because <laughs> it doesn't even, it doesn't sound real. Like it's just like, it's so overdone, but I just really like the feel of that. I could never really get used to those Apple flattish keyboards, you know, I, I really like, I like some travel on it. It takes a while. I remember when I got my first one a few years ago, the flat one, and it it does. It takes a it takes a while. So you're cutting on Final Cut, and then um, are you doing any color adjustments? Or are you handing it over to a colorist with Resolve, or are you working in Resolve as well? A lot of time. I mean, it definitely depends on the project. We do a lot of these mini documentaries, mm-hmm. and sometimes we will finish them right in the edit. I mm-hmm. think Final Cut's color tools are very good. Um. You know, especially when your output is that your final output is YouTube or the web. I mean, you can certainly get it looking really nice. Um, uh, John Popola here, he's a really great colorist. He uses Resolve. Okay. Um, so he usually gets it looking kind of near finished. Um, or, you know, it, when we don't, basically, it's like when our budgets are good, we can go get professional color help. When our budgets are medium, we have to do it all here. Um, both of our films, we've been able to go out to external colorists and had a great experience with that. Um, but, you know, it's just so different than the days when I used to work on commercials where the whole workflow was so segmented. You know, you would just edit and then just pass it on to the next person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and we're very much, you know, just passing it between rooms here. That's um, awesome. Um, the only thing we don't really have in house anymore is, um, motion graphics. We've, we've had a number of people here over the years. Um, and it's just, we, we have such a lumpy need for that, you know, where it's like, sometimes we are 
doing like five projects at once that need motion graphics. And then we'll have months where we don't. Mm -hmm. So it's just better that everybody comes in on a freelance basis for that. Mm -hmm. What about sweetening? Did you sweeten the the pursuit? Did you send that out for any sweetening or how did you handle that? Um, Sure. I mean, that's one thing where we had, so it went out to Pro Tools Mm -hmm. um, and we used X2 Pro, which is a plugin for Final Cut to make an AAF. And that AAF was a little crazy. It had a lot of, um, what are they called? The IXML tags. So like everywhere the mixers go, you know, it's the recordists, I mean, um, they were tagging every channel, you know, so they'd have a six channel recorder and they're tagging every channel. Well, we had a lot of different shoots and we had a lot of different tags. So we sort of left all those in Final Cut as roles. Mm-hmm. And then when we made that AAF, we had something crazy like 300 role, uh, sub roles. Wow. Under, and, and, and the mixer was like, what is this? <laughs> like, I am not doing, well, Did let he me quit? take that back. <laughs> No, no, no. But what he was trying to do was save us a lot of money because he's like, you don't want me to sit here and deal with this, mm-hmm. like for my rate. So we went back and cleaned that up a good amount and handed him back because usually X2 Pro produces something pretty great. Like usually that AAF is is um, something mixers like. Um, this just, this was such a big project and so many different IXML tags. We were not, we were not quite prepared for what it produced. So after we cleaned that up, um, we had like a two week long, uh, professional mix in surround. And, uh, that was definitely, as I said before, definitely necessary for all the different Arthur sounds and spaces he was in to make it sound like, you know, when it's all becoming narration under the thing, uh, under mm-hmm. the picture, you need it to all sound like it was recorded at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's your new one? You're working on March of History, right? Is that the oh, new well, one March you were talking History, about? Or So I have, to, so two things since we've done the pursuit that are out in the, one is out in the world. One is just starting production. Mm-hmm. March of History is, so the interesting backstory behind March of History is it's the third in a series <laughs> of of economic rap battles. I love it. Between long dead economists. Um, and believe it or not, uh, the first one we made in 2009, it was actually the foundation of our company hmm. uh, because that went viral on YouTube. It was a rap battle about um, around the financial crisis about um, around bailouts and boom and bust cycles. And, you know, why is the housing market going crazy? And we made sort of a rap battle between two opposing long dead economists (laughs) and that went viral. It's, it launched on NPR. Um, New York times wrote up a little blog post about it. So it was actually a pretty big hit and we raised money to do another one. And then from there we started doing documentaries about economics and education Um, And that really was how we got out of the broadcast networks and into all kinds of content development and, you know, really quirky stuff we've made. But I I think that's one of the things we're going to be remembered for because it's the one thing when you mention it, usually in a room of 10 people, one person will have heard of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's true. So, um, 
And and it has been. And the other gratifying thing about them is they have been used in a lot of economics classes in high school and college because um, we had them. They, they were co-written by uh, John and an economist, Russ Roberts, the first two. And so they had this academic rigor that was really like, yeah, this is silly, but it's actually the real lesson. So if you listen to this, you're not going to learn the whole lesson, but you're going to hear all these terms that hopefully you'll look up and and it'll start the lesson. So that long-winded intro, the third one just released in October, and it's about the very important topic that we hear about today all the time. And it's it's Karl Marx versus uh, Friedrich von Mises, capitalism <laughs> versus socialism. So these long dead economists get together and have a battle about what in the march of history has been the, you know, the dominant theme. So we used a lot of historical footage. You know, these guys are wrapping over <laughs> um, footage of of historical uprisings and um, communist China and Russia and just all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and and so far that has been very successful as well. And we just found out that it has gone viral in China. It was reposted in China, like, you know, not on YouTube. So it doesn't, so if you go to our YouTube channel, I think it's up to, you know, some amount, like some small amount of view, like 2 million, 3 million views, something like that. But in China, wait a minute, Josh, two or three million is not small. Okay, no, no, no. moving on. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to exaggerate that. I, I'll, I'll have to look it up. But All right. in China, it was reposted and it's up to 4.3 million views. Wow. So mm-hmm. that, so they are big fans, I guess. That's wonderful. Well, you guys have an amazing sense of humor and a great, uh, a great sense of um, just. I don't know, the creativity behind your company and your ability to tell a story and find interesting stories is really wonderful. You talked about in uh, when I was reading your uh, description of the company, you talk about mission critical. And I think that you're doing the kind of things that we need more of. We need companies that have a sense of an important mission and know how to relay that to the public in a way that it's going to be sort of easy to digest and interesting. And, and I really, I really commend you on that. I think it's wonderful. Uh, Thank you. I mean, I, I think that's one of the things we, you know, we're presented with some of these very heady and nerdy topics that, you know, don't sound very entertaining. And it's sort of our mission to present them in an entertaining way that you would keep an audience. And I think that's partly because of our background in, you know, from Nickelodeon and Spike TV, you Mm -hmm. know, we're used to promoting and marketing and making trailers for things. And, um, that's, that's just always been in our DNA to take these very complex subjects and try to make them interesting for a broad audience. Mm -hmm. Well, you're doing a great job. So what's the new one that you're just starting? Well, the new one I'm just starting, I can't, can't talk about it too much. I can't talk about it too okay. much, but we shot the opening scenes and I can tell you it's about the broad overview is it's about modern parenting. Oh, nice. Ooh. Yeah. yeah so there's nice. a lot there's a lot there to dig into. Um oh. but but we're very excited about this first scene. It it came out really great and our, our strategy was we would shoot this first scene 
which has some really great experts and some reenactments, and then use that to raise money for the rest. Mm -hmm. So we're very much using this as a proof of concept, and we will see where we go from there. Much better than a sizzle reel where you pick pieces of other people's work and put it together and try to sell a concept based on that. I've never really been a very big fan of that. I think that's cheating in a way. Yes, but but I mean, we use those too. And I mean, my, I did, I used to work on the upfronts for networks. So Mm -hmm. I did so many sizzle reels. Sometimes I would have to do a sizzle reel for a new show and I would only have a logo. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. And you'd have to go from there. And it's like, you're talking about, okay, it's going to show on stage to all these advertisers and it's got to be good. And you're just like, so you really learn the smoke and mirrors of selling. Mm Mm-hmm. When you do those upfront presentations. Yeah, the marketing background is really important. I've always said that anybody that can cut really good promos knows how to distill a story down to the mate, just to the aspect. It's like cooking it way, way down and getting just what's really important. If you can do that, you can create long form entertainment and do it well, I think. I think the promos are harder in a way. Yeah, but but I mean, it's hard. It's it, Promos yeah. are hard too. They're hard yeah. in their own way. Of course. are hard. You agonize over frames rather than minutes you know, so Mm -hmm. it's different. Well, my goodness, Josh, this has been wonderful. Thank you for all this wonderful information. I know people are really going to enjoy listening to this. We're going to follow you because I'm going to want to bring you back in when you have this new one a little further along the road. Um, And I I thank you for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. And we'll do it again very soon. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I've been speaking with Josh Myers, who's the head of post-production and co-founder of Emergent Order. Where's your YouTube channel? What's the name of your YouTube channel? Our YouTube channel, I believe, is just at Emergent Order. Okay. Um, and and the new video was actually produced for another entity, but we have a link if you okay. go to our channel. Okay. So what is the website you want people to visit? Uh, you can just go to emergentorder.com. All right. That's great. And then look for look for At The Fork on Amazon Prime and definitely look at The Pursuit currently on Netflix. And um, you know what I tell you guys every time, get up off your chairs and go do something wonderful today. Thanks, Josh. And thanks to the listeners. And thanks to OWC for sponsoring and making this program possible. Thank you.